are this morning uh, getting to dive into like just a really, really rich text, uh, just continuing our series called Gospel Impact, uh, which is on the book of Philippians. So Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, uh, what did he write to them? What did it mean for them? And then what does it mean for us? How does the gospel impact us? Um, so if you have your Bibles, feel free to open them. Uh, we'll be in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8. So oftentimes in life, I've heard this saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? So I'm sure you guys have heard that before, but it's somewhat true. But doing some research, I found like imitation is very interesting because all kinds of different organisms and beings can imitate, whether through their conscious or their subconscious. So for instance, insects are very, very good at this. Uh, like a stick bug. A stick bug has the ability to, to recognize if a predator is in sight and hunts by eyesight. A stick bug can just change its color to adapt to whatever stick it might be on, and then the predator can't see it. But we do it as humans as well. So for instance, like, I'm a huge sports fan. Root for all the Arizona teams, except U of A. Um, so root for all the Arizona teams, but when you go, to, you go to a game, and this has not been like the last five years for the Arizona teams, like it's 10.05, the Cardinals kicked off five minutes ago, they're probably already down seven to zero. Um, but you go to a sporting event, and what do you do? You cheer, you lift your hands. I don't like do that when my wife gets out of bed in the morning, that would be weird, right? We do that because the people around us do that. Like job interviews, research has showed like you're probably, when you go interview for a job, you're gonna dress like the job you're gonna have. So I came from the business world. If I would go to a job interview in the business world, I'd wear a suit. Then I came into the church world, which is like a culture shock, where what I'm wearing right now, I'm pretty dressed up. So to come to, a come to an interview in church with a suit would be like, okay, what's this guy doing? But comedians do it. We all do it. If I yawned right now, 40% of you would yawn, even though you might not be tired. It's just in our subconscious, we imitate. Comedians do this. You're like, Frank Caliendo is the guy that does it. But if you guys remember several years ago, uh, Tina Fey and Sarah Palin. So this was in the political climate in our country was nowhere near as crazy as it is now. Um, Tina Fey and Sarah Palin look like each other. So she was on the ticket to be the vice president. And I read an interview with Tina Fey on how she did the imitation of Sarah Palin. Literally took hours to study Sarah Palin, everything about her. Not only the way she dressed, but like the way she would move her shoulders when she would talk. Her accent, she's from Alaska. She studied every mannerism she has to where I'm not 100% sure which one's Tina Fey and which one's Sarah Palin up on the screen. That's imitation at its finest. And obviously Sarah Palin was a good sport. Um, so my son is four. Uh, he goes to uh, West Valley Christian Preschool and I, I took him to school and it was dress like what you wanna be when you grow up day. And um, so I, I'm walking him into class, like holding his hand, and I walk into his class, and there's other kids in his class. There's like firefighters and police officers, like all these noble professions. One kid who I'm not sure what's going on in his house, he was a Ninja Turtle. Um, not Halloween, bro. Um, what does my kid dress as? I know, he's cute. Uh, we, I didn't ask him to do this. We said, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I want to be like daddy. I want to be a, a church planter. Um, so we dressed him up like how I dress every day. You see, he's got like his Desert Springs name tag, uh, his Bible, his little flannel here. Uh, Blaine hooked him up with a microphone that now he uses to whip his brothers with the other end of it. Um, 
But I got to take him into school that day. It was a proud moment for me. But it just shows, like, we imitate from a very young age. We imitate the things uh, that are around us. And last week, Pastor Steve talked about humility, how we should be humble. And this week, it's really cool because the passage I get to cover, Paul is basically saying, like, hey, you guys should be humble, but I'm going to point you to an example of imitation that's perfect. He's telling the Philippian church, hey, be humble, but be humble by looking at the example of Jesus Christ. So let's dive right into what we have to cover this morning. So Paul says, Philippians 2, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When he's saying, have this mind, he's talking about what he said in last week's sermon, verses 2 through 4. Have the same mind, be of the same love, be in one accord, don't have any selfishness. Have that mind. But it's interesting, whenever Paul writes, he uses this term, among yourselves, he's talking to the, the church saying like, how are you guys when you're walking in the street, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're in your community, how do you act? And he's asking them to be humble in that regard. It's changing their attitude and their mindset internally so when they go out externally, they're a certain way. So they're impacting their community, but ultimately their heart should be impacted by this humility. And he's saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is Christ Jesus. And now he's going to launch into what's like the most debated passage in all of the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. There's literally like massive books that have been written on what does this passage mean? The church has gone awry at some points, like heresies have started because of this passage. And here's the main, main point of the passage. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ in his incarnation is 100% God and 100% man. Where things have gone off, where heresies have arisen, is when people will take his godness or his deity and put that above his humanity or the opposite. They'll take his humanity and put that over his deity. Those two things, it's called the hypostatic union, if you want to be a real nerd, those things work together in themselves and we're going to get to see that this morning. So verse 6, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus and he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So one thing you'll pick up on this passage is when we read it in English, it doesn't really like mean what we think it means. So we have to read it in the original language. So when he says, who though he was in the form of God, that word form is morphe in the Greek, how I would think of form is like a potter wielding clay. But that's not what Paul's saying. Like we think like the potter is gonna wield the clay into something and then what's it gonna look like? That's its form. Paul's saying, no, that's not what I'm saying here. His form, like, think, what is the clay made up of? What are the contents of the clay? And by Paul saying he was in the form of God, he's saying right there, Jesus is God. All the, all the things that fill God, all the characteristics of God can be found in Jesus. The NIV puts it, who, though in the very nature God, he's saying Jesus is God. But then he says something that's uh, it's difficult. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So that verb, to be grasped, that's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. And it's used like five times in ancient literature, so it's not a word that's translated real easily. When I read that initially, I'm like, okay, that doesn't make sense. He was God, but yet like he couldn't count his equality with God something he could grasp. Like grasp, for us, that's like reaching at something, that's trying to grab something, and that's not what Paul's saying. 
Paul's not saying like though he was God, he was kind of like 98% God and couldn't really quite get that extra 2%. That's not what that means. That's where you become a heretic. Um, We don't want to do that. Uh, What it does mean is that he's fully God, but he didn't consider his godness. He didn't consider his deity something that he should take advantage of. He didn't consider it something to be seized, something to exploit. And you'll see in this text exactly how Jesus showed his deity, showed his godness. In verse 7 it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this word emptied himself, another difficult word, where all kinds of different books and theories have been written on that. When we read empty, I think of like my tank of gas. If my tank of gas is empty, it has no gas. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying like when Christ came to earth, he emptied himself of his godness. That's not right. He's 100% God the entire time he's on earth. What he's saying when Christ emptied himself is he didn't, he didn't empty himself of something, he just poured himself out. Like the King James Version says, he made himself of no reputation. So here's where you connect the dots in verse six. He didn't consider that equality something to take advantage of, but he emptied himself, he poured himself out. And how did he do that? All this text works on, its, on itself, it works together. He says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Christ came to the earth, he's fully God, but how? He takes on the form of a servant. Here's that word form again. And that word servant is doulos in the Greek. That's translated to slave. A lot of our translations won't say slave because how we read the word slave is in an Americanized mindset. That's not how it was there. So to Paul's audience, slavery was extremely commonplace. There were no bankruptcy laws then. So if you were going bankrupt, you couldn't go file for bankruptcy. You'd have to go actually serve as a slave to a family. You would work in somebody's house for about 10 years, either you yourself or just your, or your whole entire family, but you'd live a normal life. You'd get paid normal wages. They weren't abused, but you also weren't really at the upper rung of society. You didn't want to be a slave. That wasn't like career day. But it's interesting, like, he took on the form of a slave. Remember that word form? He wasn't actually a slave, but he took on the form of a slave. And we see this evidence uh, in the Gospels. Matthew 8, 20, Jesus said to the guy, he said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't have anywhere to sleep that night. Luke 8, 2 and 3, it says, this is Jesus and the disciples are going somewhere and it says, and some women were with him. They were healed of evil spirits. Mary Magdalene, seven demons had gone out. And notice what it says next. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, and this is key, who provided for them out of their means. They provided for Jesus and, their, and his disciples out of their means. So this is where you see Jesus is God. He could have had all the money in the world, but he didn't wield that power. He didn't, ex- he didn't expect that something to be grasped. People provided for him. And then he's born in the likeness of men. Jesus was God just living a truly human life. And then in verse 8, the final verse that we'll cover this morning, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. So there's that word form again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he was found in human form. Jesus Christ is God, but he was found in human form. He looked just like us. Like he wasn't born a 30-year-old man. He was born a baby. 
Like he grew up, he hit puberty, he got angry, he flipped over tables in the temple, he sweat, he fell asleep on the boat, so he got tired. Like Jesus had the same exact qualities as we do as humans because he was one. So he was in the form of a man, but what does he do? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember a couple verses ago, he empties himself, he comes in the form of a slave, now he's humbling himself, and he's taken on the form of somebody who's crucified. But he actually does get crucified. So his humility is taken step by step by step lower. He's the likeness of man, he's a slave, and now he's crucified on a cross. So Paul's explaining that to us. And crucifixion, uh, Robbie did a phenomenal job on Good Friday this year, just explaining what Jesus went through physically at a crucifixion. Anytime somebody was crucified, it was literally the worst way that someone could die within the Roman government. So if you're gonna list 200 ways to die, crucifixion's number 200. The pain, the suffering, just the absolute lack of humanity that took place with people who got crucified, it was the worst way to die. So bad that it's rarely talked about in history. And it wasn't typical for Roman citizens to get crucified. It was just typical for the people outside of that. The people who are at the lowest of low of society, that's who would get crucified. And that's ultimately who Jesus was crucified with. So in this passage we see Christ, is, he's expressing full his deity and his humanity. He expresses his godness by pouring himself out. And he expresses his humanness by humbling himself to crucifixion and dying on the cross. So I read this passage a ton of times and just studied it because I want to say the right things. And the first thing that jumped out at me is this just reveals God's character, doesn't it? So John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was God. And then later on in John 1.14, he says, And the Word became flesh. He was incarnated. Jesus came to earth. And this Philippians passage expands on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But it's awesome to see that like that passage in John would say like the word is God. Like Jesus is God. All the characteristics you're searching for in God can be found in Jesus. And what's awesome about this passage is that Jesus came to the earth and he could have taken the loftiest status possible. He could have done whatever he wanted to do the entire time that he was here, but he never grasped that. He never wanted to do that. What did he do instead? He lowered himself to meet us. God's not up there in the clouds like, hey, how do I search for him? No, he lowered himself. He identifies with us. He identifies with our humility. He identifies with our darkness. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's amazing. Jesus identifies with your brokenness. He identifies with your hurt. 2 Corinthians 1, it calls God the God of comfort that God sees you in your affliction. And how awesome is that? When we walk in here this morning, for some of you, your life might be awesome, but for others, you might be in a moment of darkness that you don't have to look up, you just look to the side and that's exactly where Jesus Christ is. So what's our response to that? Like as Christians, we read this, like obviously it should be like we bow down at the Lord, but like my question is like, how are you emptying yourself? 
Like, what are you emptying yourself on? Or maybe like, what's filling you up might be a better question. But how are you emptying yourself? How are you pouring yourself out? And I think one thing that stuck out to me with this passage is there's two contrasting ways of life that we can live. And the first way of life that we can live is a life of ascension. And I talked about imitation. We get this from birth. We get to live a life of ascension in our heads from birth. And what is that life? It's a life of progress where things are always going to get a little bit better. And it's putting my desires, my goals, my plans, my dreams is what comes first. I'm living a life of ascension. A year from now, I should be smarter than I was today. I should be healthier than I was today. I should have more money or be in less debt than I was today. But what the problem is with a life of ascension that we are taught to live is your personal ambition starts to govern the rules of your life. It's your personal ambition runs what you're trying to do every day, how you treat other people. It's not Christ. So I would say like, we're more like called to live a life of descension, not dissension, descension. So those are two different things. But in verse five, Paul tells us like, hey, have this mind among yourselves, which is the mind of Christ. Like in this passage, we get to see the mind of Christ. And we see Christ when he's incarnated here on earth. The incarnation is the antithesis. It's the absolute opposite of our human drive that we're taught to just dominate, to be the best, to step over the next guy. We look at Jesus throughout the gospels. He lived a life of giving, not getting. He lived a life of serving. He wasn't just being served. He lived a life of complete obedience, not dominance. So I think what we're called to do is we have to imitate him by being humble. So I have four kids. Um, We had a boy and then had twins like a year later. And when that happened, we had to upgrade our vehicle. Uh, So my wife got a Chevy Traverse. Um, So we needed something that could fit all kinds of car seats in our Traverse. Uh, So the Chevy Traverse is cool until my mother-in-law bought her uh, like a diamond license plate holder. Uh, So now when I drive it, I look super tough rolling around the mean streets of Verado. Um, Here's a picture. So how do you see people? So here's how this is illustrated. So here's a picture of the inside of my Chevy Traverse. This is not my Chevy Traverse. I don't have leather seats or the fancy wood. Uh, So here's how the seats work. So put on your imagination hats. Um, Right here is the only assigned seat in my vehicle. Uh, That is where my six-month-old baby girl sits. The princess sits right there behind the dad. She'll sit there until she's like 70. Uh, In the middle, this is a car seat again. This is what's called sister's seat. And right here, this is called window seat, like we're on an airplane. In the back, that is called the back, like a sheep. These two seats laid down. Why? I have like 14 strollers in my garage. They sit there. So here's how it works. If my wife tells, uh, tells my kids, hey, boys, get your shoes on. They do not get their shoes on. They immediately start to jockey for who gets to sit where in the car. They're literally fighting each other in my kitchen. Uh, they play like paper, rock, scissors, even though they have no idea how to play it. Uh, one of the twins will run out and like hang on the knob of the door, like the handle, and he's going to break it, and I don't know how to fix it. Um, There's all kinds of problems. They fight over the seats because the seat of honor is sister's seat. If you get to sit there, you won. And then it's window seat, and then the back is like, I don't want to sit in the back. It's like the spot of punishment. They literally have to climb through the back 
Okay, you should see us get out of the car at Fry's. It's entertaining. Um, why do my kids do that though? It's because they're cute little sinners. That's why. My kids are cute little sinners. We're ugly sinners though. And it's interesting, like I, pick, I put a picture of my car up here, which is fine, but you read John or Mark chapter 10, you have James and John, two of Jesus' most beloved disciples, and they're walking next to Jesus, and they stop Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, can we ask you a quick question? And Jesus just stops, and he's like, yeah, what's up? And they say, hey, can you just guarantee us, like in the kingdom, one of us will sit at your right hand, and one of us will sit at your left hand? And Jesus looks at him, and I just think Jesus is like, man, we're 10 chapters into Mark, and you guys still can't figure out what we're trying to do here. What did James and John want? What do my kids want? We want to be crowned. We want to be honored. We want to be exalted. We want to be glorified. We search for that. So how do you see people? Like, how do you see people when you're driving on the road, the guy that's bagging your groceries, the annoying family member that has to come to Thanksgiving, or or maybe there's just an annoying person in your connect group? How do you see them? Is everybody just like a pawn in your life to like leverage that relationship to get something for you? To take a life of ascension, to move up to the top? How do you see people? Or is your relationship out of love for them and humility? I wanna remind you guys that we're called to live a life of descension, not ascension. We have to reject that life of ascension because that's not what we were taught. In Matthew 16, 24, It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is saying is like, you have to pursue the cross before you pursue the crown. And what's interesting in Luke 23, Jesus is crucified. And there's a guy at his right and his left when he's crucified, right? But who are they? They're thieves, they're criminals. And what's so profound in Luke 23 is one of the thieves looks at Jesus hanging on the cross and what does he say to Jesus? It's funny, the thief is better than the two disciples, right? He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And I think like we have to ask ourselves some questions. Are we asking ourselves just simply like, Jesus, can I just reign with you forever? Is that all we're focused on? Or is it more like, Jesus, just continue to crucify my thoughts, my mind, my heart, That way when the kingdom comes, I'll be there right with you. And I think we see two pictures of discipleship. Either we're people that use the Lord to pursue power and honor and prestige, or we're people that worship Jesus by simply embracing the cross. So the last point I have, and I'll invite the band back up, is that we should worship him. So we're gonna sing one more song. Um, That should be the point of literally every sermon that's preached, right? We should worship God, but like, What's really interesting to me is is researching this. So Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church. And when he did that, the church was being uh, ruled over by an emperor, Nero. And if you are uh, any sort of like a history buff, you know Nero was like not a good dude, bad guy. Nero's reign was marked by two different things, tyranny and extravagance. So all Nero ever wanted to do was just leverage the people around him. I mean, he was the man. He could, he could move anybody wherever he wanted for his own deal, where he tortured his people. That's how he ruled, with tyranny. And then extravagance. He had all the money in the world. He was the man. And he lived a life just like that. How interesting is it that our king humbled himself? He didn't exalt himself. He didn't fill himself up with power. 
he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He took on our suffering, he took on our powerlessness, our humiliation, our small stature, like Christ took all that on. In the 8 a.m. service, the choir sang a song that was like, it should have been my hands, it should have been my feet where the nails went through, but like, it wasn't. It was Christ's hands, it was his feet. He did that for us. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are saved. Think about that. For an unbeliever, like, why would I want to worship some dude who was crucified on a cross? But two sides of the same coin. For us that believe, that is nothing but power, that's nothing but graciousness for those of us who are saved. Because Christ is somebody that is able to identify with us and what he does in that moment is he meets you right next to you in your darkness because he knows exactly what you're going through. That limp that you walked in here with this morning, he fixes that. Jesus is awesome and we should worship him.